people just are beginning to imagine, well, okay, so I can get an image, but maybe that's not their question. But they don't care about satellite imagery. They care about answers to their questions. And so I've always been very keen on, on focusing on how do we deliver answers. And that's why oftentimes we work with uh, human in the loop analytics to get them answers to their questions right away. We're standing by. Entry interface minus five minutes. Hey everybody, welcome back to New Space. I'm your host, John Severance. These are space cameras, snapping photos of Earth from low Earth orbit. Okay, that's an analogy. But the truth is, satellites are the ultimate aerial cameras. Click by click, they're assembling a whole new picture of the Earth. Earth observation is leading to a whole new massive database. The challenge is that it's very difficult to search terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of so many different kinds of data. Photos, video, temperature maps, RF, spectral imaging. Google image search, that's not going to help. This is highly complex stuff. Exactly the stuff that our next guest, Jamie Conklin, and his company, Estrella, love to sort through. The reason why I wanted to focus on Estrella is one of, one of the overall trends that we see in the Earth observation geointelligence market is that traditionally this has been the domain of, of big governments, right? So Russia, United States, et cetera, China. And now we're seeing a commercialization going on right now. And we're seeing a lot of new companies like Estrella get into the market and then offer a platform so that Earth observation, geospatial, and other forms of visual data that we can capture from space are something that a lot of different companies can use. My take on it is it looks like to me your mission includes democratizing access to Earth observation data. Is that how you see it? And then why is this needed and what are the challenges to doing that? So democratizing access to Earth observation data is essential in, in order for us to achieve a lot of our other missions. We're a benefits-oriented company and our goal is to help preserve our earth. And we do it in a way where we're a for-profit, but for good organization and making sure that people have access to these data will enable them to start answering important questions that can help them drive conservation. So for example, if we know where heavy carbon emissions are coming from, if we know where methane is being emitted across the earth, that gives us the ability to do something about it. Mm -hmm. If we can monitor forest lands and, and find carbon sinks, then that helps us enhance those environments and ensure that they're protected and that they're continuing to, to be that carbon sink. So making these data available First and foremost, it just enables that as a baseline sort of capability because the earth is big and it's very hard for people to inspect it manually. And so <laughs> using remote sensing really does open a lot of doors there. So when you look at the kind of data that you're capturing from space, carbon emissions, observing changes to not only the climate, monitoring, let's say, protected wildlife areas, right? Mm -hmm. Open seas, things like that, borders. Why is this difficult to do it? from a lower elevation. Is there a new orbit, a new angle, a new way of doing this? Well, there are new ways of doing this, but to, I think the way I look at it is there are, are different platforms for collection for different purposes. So satellite collection provides one vantage point and it has lots of advantages. You can see large swaths of area. You can revisit almost any spot on the earth on a pretty frequent basis. You can visit anywhere. You don't have access limitations. So if you are denied physical access to a country, for example, you can still look. But you have 
uh, a lot of atmosphere between the satellite and the subject. And so there's a lot of work that has to be done to address the atmosphere correction. And being that far away, just a, a small tilt in one direction or another creates errors. And so it's hard to orthorectify and get these images laid perfectly on the map. So the closer you get to the Earth, the higher your resolution, less atmosphere and other things that you have in between you and, and the subject matter, but also the longer it takes to collect. The U.S. government collects all of the United States aerially every two to three years under the NAEP program. And so we have 60 centimeter resolution imagery over the whole United States every three years. Well, that's great. It provides a great base layer and gives us lots of information, but the temporal update is pretty slow. So as you get closer, your temporal frequency goes down unless you're collecting over a very small area. And that would take an eternity to collect the United States and a lot of battery charging. Yeah. So there's a lot of different types of data that people are collecting. There are different ways of collecting it, different resolutions, mm -hmm. et cetera. So you'd have to really, I would imagine, do a lot of work to piece together the picture that you're looking for. So in that context, can you talk to me about Estrella, why and when and how your company was founded and what specific problem are you guys trying to solve right now? Yeah. So if you'll humor me, I'll uh, put this in terms of the quip that I use uh, on a regular basis, which is that Estrella got started when a remote sensing expert, a computer scientist, and a data scientist walked into a bar and decided that they were going to start creating information products from satellite imagery. After a couple of drinks, seemed like a great idea and off to the races, they built a company. But pretty quickly, they realized, wow, there's a lot of barriers to, to doing this. Finding the data and getting access to these data is a pain. You go and you find the website, you get the all the different signups and privileges you need. You go download a bunch of data and you've got lots of images with clouds. So now you do it again and find all the images without clouds and your hard drive's full, your GIS is cracked out and you're at a point where you can't process the data in a reasonable way. So you go become an Amazon expert, you go stand up an Amazon cloud, you get all that running, you feel really proud of all these extra DevOps skills you've acquired along the way and you realize that a lot of the libraries didn't scale. And so every step in the process they were facing when they founded the company, there was just yet another barrier. The analytics existed, the techniques were there, the information and the signal was in the data, but extracting that signal was onerous and had just all these barriers. So after a few months of struggling, they realized that they needed to pivot. And so they pivoted the company and, and focused on building a platform to try and address all of these obstacles and to remove these obstacles so that data scientists find data and use it. And that people who weren't data scientists could find the data and view it and, and do some basic analytics on it and become aware of what was possible with all of these data that were available. And so that was sort of the genesis of the big idea. And that's sort of what we've gone to, to build is, is a platform that we think goes end to end. And it solves the problem of figuring out which data you need and how to get it at a reasonable price, how to store it, how to share it across the company, how to process it, and then how to disseminate that and, and get that out to users. Is it the problem because there's so many images that these images are very large images? I'm even thinking it's very difficult to search your photos. Getting my photos off my iPhone on my hard drive without using Google Cloud is next to impossible, right? That's right. Uh, so we've all heard about big data for what, 10 years, 15 years now. And what the big data movement really focused in on was, was transactional data, like records in a database. And so every datum was small, could be shipped about and used and, and processed, but heavy data, like imagery data that with these large files, gigabyte sized files were largely ignored, right? There wasn't a mechanism for dealing with it. And there was so much of this other stuff that everybody sort of focused over here 
And imagery kind of got left behind a little bit. And so it really took a long time for imagery bubbling up to the surface and people saying, hey, we really need to start doing this. And we saw movements from some of the bigger companies like Google and, and others who, who started investing money and building neural networks and deep learning. They started to push the boundaries of that and people started opening their eyes to see, wow, this this is actually getting into the realm of possible. So it was sort of with the growth of cloud computing and on-demand computing resources, Amazon, Google Cloud, Azure, combined with access to huge storage and the revisiting of techniques like neural networks. That's sort of what brought imagery up to the forefront, I think, in, in many ways. And so the challenge has been there weren't the tools for processing them and the data themselves were big files and hard to move around. And they're complex files. An image from a satellite will have multiple bands and then they'll have post-processing techniques that they've applied to them. And they've got spatial coordinates. So a single satellite image can easily be seven or eight dimensions, sometimes 50 to 100 dimensions of data in one. And so that's where this complexity comes from. It's not these simple transactional records that are easy to imagine and visualize. Yeah. Why did you spend $40 at Chipotle? What were you doing? Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's the data I look at. Well, 40 bucks, that's actually probably two meals. So can you walk me through a scenario where, let's say, take a customer or a type of customer that you'd have, right? You sit down with them. What are they trying to discover or what data are they trying to add to their mix for what reason? And then how does your platform enable them to move forward? There's several fun case studies there that are kind of interesting. The first one I'll go was the first one we talked about, which was a project we did for the spatial finance initiative where we were looking to identify or find cement factories. Cement factories are huge emitters of carbon dioxide. And so we wanted to figure out where they were so that we could start addressing that. And so we worked with a team of data scientists who built models of the atmospheric composition to figure out where these might be. And then we went out and found imagery and we located the actual factories themselves. And then we did measurements on these to assess their capacity and things like that. So that was a really exciting project because we found over 600 cement factories just in China. And so that was a really good example of us sort of being able to do an inventory of, of where heavy emitters are. Another interesting use case, we've done a lot of work with the Nature Conservancy, and they do a lot of work in preserving conserved lands and and preserving the ecosystems that exist there. Um, And so when they have a land under conservation, they want to make sure that it's a viable ecosystem, for example, for longleaf pond. And so we've helped them use remote sensing data to assess the quality of an ecosystem. And then once you've assessed qualities of these ecosystems, what other lands do they need to go acquire conservation rights to in order to have the maximum amount of impact? Because really what they're trying to do is preserve longleaf pines for not just on the lands that they conserve, but the whole ecosystem. And they look at things like connectivity between preserved lands so that wildlife can migrate between them. And so it's, it's a very holistic view. And then the last example I can give you that would be really fun and, and along similar lines is a, a pilot study we did for a company that focuses on reseeding efforts after a forest fire. And so we wanted to figure out which lands were burned and how badly and were they forested beforehand and a handful of other factors that were that were competitively relevant to this company. And what we were able to do is we were able to prioritize a map for them and saying these are the properties that you would be best served to try to reforest. So can we jump into the middle use case because it's it's complex? Do they sit down with you and say, here's what we're trying to discover? And then do they use the platform to search images? Do they tell you what type of images or, or what they're looking for, and then you go on the image hunt. How do they actually use Estrella's platform? Is it on their desktop in their offices or is it a different thing? 
There's a bunch of answers to that question. First of all, the Australia platform is cloud native, which is one of the features that we think we bring to the table. We built everything to take advantage of cloud services so that we don't have the limitations of being on the desktop. And also the cloud is where the data are. And so it's much faster to process the data while they're in the cloud than to download them and process them. When it comes to acquiring data, this is very complex. And different organizations have different levels of expertise here. And we will work with organizations to consult and help them find the right data for the project. In this particular case, the temporal resolution wasn't really important. And we were able to take advantage of a free data source, which was Nate. But we do a lot of work with the Nature Conservancy, helping them solve different problems. We worked with one of their chapters that was looking at identifying whales. And we were looking at pairing them up with balloon companies to help collect imagery over the Pacific Ocean to monitor whale migration. So the extent that we go to to help them figure out what's the best platform to collect the data they're looking for is very deep in that. That's where we have a lot of expertise. And so once we advise them and help them figure it out, we have relationships with these imagery providers. We go acquire the imagery for them and then deliver it through our platform. So now they can come in and they can log into our tool called Earth and they have access to all the imagery that they've acquired, plus all the public imagery that we index and make available. And so now they have this interactive web application where they can search across space, time, and cloud cover and data set. And that really covers a lot of the basis of finding data and determining whether a particular data set will be. So for example, one of the challenges in, in data science is finding data sets that go back far enough. So people say, oh, Landsat, it's only got 15 meter resolution. So it's not really that great data. That's true, but it also goes back 40 years. Show me another data set that has 40 years of coverage of the whole earth. So we just sort of help by understanding their application and, and making recommendations. To what degree do organizations out there understand that there's new data, maybe data they've never looked at, didn't even know existed, that can be critical in solving some of their challenges? It really depends on the industry. For example, agriculture is probably one of the most sophisticated industries when it comes to using Earth observation data. They've been using imagery for years, and they've developed a lot of techniques, and they know how to use it to make assessments about irrigation and crop health and crop damage and things like that. They, they know a lot. And so they're very savvy users. Most customers probably are aware that there's satellite imagery out there and they know what they see when they go to Google Maps, but they probably don't know much at all about the ability to acquire that imagery or even how much it costs, because that's been a very opaque business for a long, long time. And, and a lot of companies have made it pretty challenging to actually work with them unless you're a big buyer because they don't have the capacity to deal with it. And so the imagery industry has reached out and created reseller networks, of which Australia is, is a member of many of those networks. And so now we can help customers understand and learn about the products that these companies offer and, and work with smaller customers as well as larger ones. And so it just really increases the reach of these companies by granting them more sales teams and teams who understand it. Yeah, that's good for them. Yeah, it's a good business because it's hard. I mean, it, people don't know this stuff. They need to be educated. Like you said, we all know there's Google Earth. We... Probably have a few other things we might recognize. What can you see from space? What types of data are there? Maybe that's another way of lo looking at it. Yeah. I, I kind of want to answer your question in a couple of different ways. So when it comes to just imagery data, which is pictures, there's sort of two modalities of going after data. There's tasking data where you say, go take a picture of this at this time. And then there's global mapping missions, which image the whole earth on a regular basis. And so our governments have done a good job of building lots of global mapping missions. So there's the Sentinel, which is by the European Space Agency. There's Landsat from the US government. Plan 
planet is, is another one. They image the whole Earth every day at uh, 3.7 meter imagery. So they have a very unique data set. Then you have these high resolution images, which are very small areas, but tend to be a high resolution. So anything from one and a half meters down to 30 centimeters, you have a lot of providers and, and those require tasking. You pretty much have to task everything. So that's a big, important concept, understanding the difference between tasking and global mapping. The tasking is high resolution, but infrequent. Global mapping is regular, but low resolution. The other big thing is to look at it from a sort of a frequency perspective. Some of the providers provide lots of different spectra chunks. So we're used to thinking in red, green, and blue. So your digital camera has red, green, and blue sensors, and it puts it all together to come up with a true color image. And most satellites are doing that today. But they also will collect a panchromatic band, which is one color. It's like black and white, gray scale. And then they have multispectral and hyperspectral satellites, which collect things like near-infrared, shortwave infrared, and then they have many variations. So if you hear about hyperspectral, you're usually talking about 27 to 100 bands of light frequencies. And so these data can be used to find very interesting signatures on the ground. So for example, corn might have a particular signature or different materials. There's lots of defense and intelligence applications that, that use hyperspectral data to understand what's going on on the ground and where they might find fertilizer or things like that. Hyperspectral is also heavily used in the oil and gas and, and the, the mining industries for, for prospecting and things like that. So the spectrum is a, is a key thing to be thinking about. What you're seeing today is most of the image providers are either three-band, RGB, four-band, they add a near-infrared, which is useful for agriculture, or multispectral, where they'll have like eight bands. And we're seeing more and more hyperspectral imagers coming online. So we're going to start seeing a lot of this hyperspectral data becoming available. And that's where we're going to be able to start doing much more specific kinds of analysis and identifying things spectrally, even though you can't see them in the resolution. Other than corn and oil, what what else has like a spectral fingerprint or signature? It is like a fingerprint. I mean, pretty much lots of different things. You can look at algal blooms in water. You can look at salinity levels in water. You can start doing crop identification. Certainly minerals have lots of different spectral resolutions. You could use hyperspectral imagery to understand the health of a crop at a higher resolution. So the most common thing to do is to look at the NDVI, which is the measure essentially of the greenness of a particular location. And that's used to help understand the health of crops. But that's a fairly coarse measure. With hyperspectral data, you can get much more refined results and perhaps even be able to tell the difference between different kinds of issues that a crop might be having, whether it be water or maybe even different kinds of infestations or things like that, or mold or something. Spectral differentiation is pretty powerful, and, and it's going to be a growing field. As more of that data becomes available, we're going to learn more how to use it. One of the ways you work with your customers is they almost have an image request. Hey, go find any images of this type of thing in this type of place, right? Almost like a query. Do you set up a subscription? You say, okay, now you need to be looking at this kind of data this often in these places. These four data sets combined can give you some of the answers you're looking for. Let's kind of almost like set up a data feed. I'm just <laughs> guessing. Yeah, the answer is, is yeah. yeah. So some of our customers come to us and just say, hey, I need a picture of this and I need it within the last 30 days. Okay, we can go get that image for them and we'll deliver it through Earth on Demand. And that's that's a very straightforward transaction. And sometimes the first and last time we'll ever talk to them. Oftentimes, they usually don't know what they're looking for. So we'll investigate and talk to them about what it is that they're trying to do. And, and sometimes we can offer them solutions that will help them get further down the road than they realized. Other times, customers will come to us and say, we're trying to figure out which 
of these croplands are being irrigated. For example, they may be doing some work for an NGO in Africa, and they want to know how much of the land in a certain area has irrigation working. Okay, well, that's an interesting problem because now we got to say, well, there's there's lots of different data sets we could use, which are going to be the most affordable, but give you the the level of resolution and information that you need. And so at that point, we'll we'll work with them to figure that out, and then we may bring our data science team in and actually build an analytic for them if they don't have that capacity in house. Or we will set them up with our analysis platform and they can use our analysis tools to build their own analytics. And if they want to do this on a recurring basis, then yeah, we'll set up a subscription of the data and we have a monitoring tool that allows them to basically look at a location on earth and slide back and forward in time to see what's going on and and keep track of things. And so, yeah, we have a lot of monitoring capability. Once an analytic has been put in place, we can even set alerts. So, hey, go look at this place. It looks dry, but it shouldn't be. And then the user can get on online, they can look and they can see. And maybe at that point they say, why is it so dry there? We know that they have a irrigation. So they'll request a high resolution image and we'll go take that high resolution image and they'll realize, hmm, it looks like there's some piece of equipment there that's on the side of the, the field. Maybe it's broken. Talking to a lot of EO and geo intelligence companies, we understand a lot of the use cases, right? So we understand a lot of defense use cases, illegal fishing, finding missing persons, forestry, right? Monitoring large swaths of the land that you can't really get access to that easily, nature conservancy. So what do you see as really exciting like use cases or trends Mm -hmm. or types of data? Where do you see the upside in innovation? One area that I'm really excited about, and we're about to start a pilot on this one, is leveraging location data from mobility, like people's cell phone data, in conjunction with imagery data. Because together, these kinds of data offer very different kinds of things, and they both have big weaknesses. So on one hand, satellite imagery, if you look at a parking lot of, say, a Lowe's or or home improvement store, you can count how many cars there and make an estimate as to how many people are in that store. But you got one period of time. Location data gives you a sample of people because not everybody's cell phone reports. A lot of people click, no, don't track me. And so you may be looking at a particular Lowe's on a particular day and say, there's 12 people there? That doesn't seem right. There's more than that many employees there right now, right? So it's just a sample of the data, but you don't really know what that correlates to in terms of actual number of people. But you put those together and you say, oh, wow, we've collected this image at 10 o'clock on these days going back. And on average, when there's 30 cars in the parking lot, there's five cell phones reporting. Okay, well, now we can start figuring out at all time how many people are there. So we can start leveraging these data together. So now we have mobility data, which has a continuous response all the time. It's always there. And we can register that to the ground and we can understand that. So that's an area where I think is really exciting. So we're using that with companies that want to understand what's their actual catchment areas. Are people, how are they interacting compared to their competitors? I see a lot of marketing applications for that, which I think is kind of really cool. And just to be clear, I think it's, it warrants saying just because a lot of people get kind of uncomfortable when we talk about this. One of the areas that that has been growing is, is the very clear opt-in nature of these data. A lot of people are actually allowing companies to track them and they're doing it willingly and knowingly. And, and uh, we're very careful about making sure we get those data just in case people start to squirm. It's really that you, you have reputable data providers when you start using that kind of stuff. Going back to Estrella, what's next for you guys? You have this platform, you're working with some customers, you're doing some pilots. We're making a really big push right now in sort of a three-step process that we've identified that works for a lot of different industries. And it's a search and prioritize, research, and then monitor 
step. So one vertical that we think is, is really prime for this is utility scale solar development. It's very hard to find a good location for a solar farm now because a lot of the best locations have been taken. And there's a lot of geospatial factors that go into prioritizing a particular lot. And so what we're doing is we're building a tool to help solar developers look at all the land in an area, find the parcels of land that are most relevant to, to them, prioritize them, and then put them in for further research. And then we have a tool that allows them to get a high resolution imagery and we can do some, we can build some reports that do basic due diligence reports, and then we can get them the owners of that property so that then they can go and, and see if those owners are interested in building it. Once they sell this development project to a, a developer who's actually going to install that solar, we can actually monitor that construction. And so we can see when they clear the land, when they lay down the infrastructure, when the solar panels start going in, and when we think it's going to be complete. There's a whole tax equity world that is really interested in selling the, the tax equity and the, and the carbon credits that you get from the government. And so they're very interested in making sure that it delivers before December 31st. And then you have the owners who are own the land that are interested in sort of tracking this and understanding what's going on. So that whole monitor step, there's a lot of different users who are interested in watching how construction projects and so each stage of the, the prospecting, the research, and the construction, we feel like that's a pretty powerful set of capabilities. That's useful for real estate, construction, any construction in general. The example I gave you earlier of prioritizing places to reseed after a, a fire. Actually, it's the same workflow. Uh, very different concept, but the same work. So what we're doing is we're building a suite of tools to take users through that flow and to enable that. And that's our big push right now. So we're rolling out an early access program for the monitoring application right now. And we'll be working on the prospecting capability over the next few months and having an early access program for that. That's cool. So when you look at a lot of companies like Estrella, you'll see words like a whole new type of information, a whole new category of information. So they're looking at geospatial earth observation, all this kind of data, planet.com, et cetera, right? As almost <laughs> a, a unexplored except by the government who's had the means and a whole geospatial set of analysts that could sit there all day long and look at images, right? But yeah. someone who works at a construction company doesn't have a visual analyst on site to look at photos all day long. So the collection of it is new. I think of one of our clients, Hawkeye 360, they're collecting RF signal data. And that they say has never been collected before at scale, right? The way not, they- not commercial entities for sure. That's right. So they have a whole narrative about how this is going to change search and rescue, how it's going to change a lot of different things, illegal fishing. How do you explain either the novelty or the importance of what you can bring to the world as far as new information, new problem-solving capabilities? I almost think the word that we're looking for is accessibility, right? Never before have you been able to get a satellite image for 200 bucks, right? Like that's novel. And so just the accessibility of these data. Most people don't even know what synthetic aperture radar data is, and even fewer people can look at it and understand it. But it's great for doing things like change detection and looking through clouds and doing discovery of things that are happening during storms. And so I think the way I think about it is many of the business and government and non-government problems that we have have a geospatial component. 
And there are more and more ways of collecting data with geospatial references in it. And so if you have a geospatial component to your problem, I bet you there's something we can do to provide you new information that you haven't seen before. And so as a product manager in a space company, my job is to stay abreast of the examples of RF collection in space. Wow, well, that means now we can track ships and planes and use AIS data that we, we couldn't access that before. You had to have an AIS receiver sitting on a boat before to know what was going on to do that. Some people are standing up ADS-B receivers to track planes over their home. So now <laughs> the accessibility of these data is much, much higher. And so now people are just beginning to unpack all the things that they can do with it. And, and that's really, really exciting. And so my approach to working with new clients is really to dig in and say, what is it that you want to know with your business? What is it that you really need to know? Start pulling the thread on the big questions, filtering down to try and find methods of answering those questions. Because I think to your point, people just are beginning to imagine, well, okay, so I can get an image, but maybe that's not their question. Most people don't care about the image. They're kind of cool. Yeah, to look at, right. but they don't care about satellite imagery. They care about answers to their questions. And so I've always been very keen on, on focusing on how do we deliver answers? And that's why oftentimes we work with uh, human in the loop analytics to get them answers to their questions right away. It takes a while to build AI and there's risk and there's time and that, that starts scaring people. They just start saying, eh, it's too complicated. But if we can come in and say, don't worry about all that. Just tell me your problems and let us help you figure out how to solve them. I feel like it makes this world seem a little bit smaller and a little bit easier to answer questions in. So Jamie, is there anything I didn't cover or that you wanted to address? No, this is this has covered a lot of ground. I think I, I'm, I really love being in this area and, and being part of the new space world. Every time I turn around, I see another company doing something exciting or fun or clever. And it makes me think, well, how can we use that and solve a different problem? And so it's just... It's always novel and it's it's moving very, very fast. Yeah, it's, it's just a pleasure working in a business like that. I'll share one small anecdote. So as I said, I've, I've been doing space and satellite for a long time, and now it's suddenly cool. I think we you know when <laughs> Jeff goes to space and Elon Musk probably helped more than any single person, right? I had a friend over for dinner and when his son found out that I do space, he, he wrote me an application, like a letter wanting to work for Everhouse. And he drew all these cool little pictures of astronauts. And I don't know how old he is. Maybe he's like 11 or 12 or 13 or something like that. But I mean, it's I think there's almost like a whole new generation that's been really excited. We call it like the Olympics of engineering space, right? So many people can get into it now. Will yeah. I be in space? There's just people are really, really curious. So yeah, it, it is kind of neat to see that be cool. I remember my first job was for the Aerospace Corporation and there were guys who would walk around with shirts that said, yes, actually I am a rocket scientist. But it's funny, the, the perspective is changing so fast. The other day, my kid asked me, what is Wi-Fi? What is it? Like, yeah. They don't even know what it is, but they use it every single day. It'll be fun to see space evolve into, why is this anything that I even need to think about? All right, that was a great conversation with Jamie. Very, very insightful stuff. If you have an idea for an episode, please visit explorenewspace.com and drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you, and we hope you're enjoying the New Space Podcast. Thank you very much. Bye.